Well, this morning we are back in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Impressive is what we want on our resumes, right? That word, impressive. It's what we want about, said about our houses, uh, our families. We want them to look impressive. Impressive is what we want our country to be. Impressive is also what we know some people are and we see them as. they brilliant people or talented people. Everyone wants to be around impressive people. Who is impressive to you today? What impresses you? What causes you to stop and take notice of something or someone? To be impressed is, a, is to feel admiration or respect for something or someone. Who are you impressed by? When you meet someone and see them in real life, what, what impresses you about them? We are a culture that gets impressed with people and stuff. We get impressed with items. We get impressed with events. We get impressed with speakers and athletes and celebrities. And the question I want you to ask yourself is why? What impresses you? Is what impresses you the same thing that impresses God? I see I've made you uncomfortable, right? That's good. I'm glad you're uncomfortable. I am too. Because we're getting somewhere now. And as we get into the second half of the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to discuss this morning the issue on how we should be impressed. Last week, we saw the end of the first half of the book with Saul's third big failure before God following him. Chapter 15 ends with the parting of ways of Samuel, the prophet of God, and Saul, the, the king of Israel. And we come into chapter 16, and this chapter is about sight. To be impressed, you have to see it for yourself. How we view things compared to how God views things. It's about vision. What do you see? Is your vision like the world or like God? Is your vision natural or supernatural? This morning, we're gonna cover chapter 16, and there's two points I want you to make notes on here. The first is what we see, what we see, and the second is what God sees. Real simple, what we see and what God sees. And I wanna read the chapter in its entirety, and so follow along, and I want you to take note as you listen and hear God's word read of things uh, that you should be impressed by, things you should see and take notice. So chapter 16, 1 Samuel, starting at verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came 
he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called an, an Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now com command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you'll be well. So Saul sent, said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. What do you see? Is it the same that God sees? What, what impresses us? Is it what it impresses God? And these are a few of the things I want to uncover this morning as we walk through the text of Scripture. And I'm going to pray and ask God to give us insight into his word, to impress on us what we need to know and where we need to change. So I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and gather together as the body of Christ and to learn from you. And God, I ask that you would be with your people here this morning, that you would open their hearts and their minds to receive your word, that they would gladly listen and, and take in what you have for them today, that you would be their teacher, their guide, that you would bring understanding to them as we walk through this chapter, and that you would be glorified in all of this. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing, what we see when we come to this chapter, we open with Samuel, who is still grieving, it says. Uh, God finds him in verse 1. He's, he's still working through what had just taken place in chapter 15, since God had removed his hand of blessing over Saul. And Samuel's not grieving over himself. But, no, he's grieving over the failure of, of Saul. 
I'm sure also he's, he's worried and fearful what will happen next for, for God's people if, if Saul is now removed. You know, God's people might disintegrate, and, and can God take care of them now? And here we notice the first thing we, we tend to see is, is, is God going to provide for me now? That's what Samuel's asking is, is what is God going to do now? Is he going to take care of me? And Samuel is focused on the lack of a king, but God already has his plan in place and is moving towards its completion. And he quickly moves on as God answers and gives direction to now he questions the Lord's directions. Did you catch that in verse 2? The Lord directs him to, to head to Bethlehem and find Jesse. One of his sons will be the one that God has chosen, but Samuel is worried. He sees the obstacles there. He sees Saul. Remember, he destroyed Saul's trophy last chapter at the end. And, and Samuel will have to walk right past Saul to do this sacrifice. And Saul is most likely not ready to meet Samuel again, not pleased with Samuel. So Samuel is fearful. He sees an obstacle instead of seeing how God is leading him. And Samuel has been affected by Saul. We, we see in his reactions to the Lord's command for him to go. He, he now sees man as too important. And Saul has influenced Samuel's thinking. He's changed him and not for the better. This isn't the same prophet that we've seen in the earlier portions of the book. Well, God answers Samuel's concern and gives him an honest cover. He's to, he's to go into town and bring a sacrifice to the Lord. He should then invite Jesse to a sacrifice and his family would come too. And so Samuel does what is commanded of him. He comes to Bethlehem. Now it's interesting, the, the elders of the city come out and greet him, but they're scared, right? They, they're trembling. They, they say to him, do you come peaceably? Are you here, Samuel, to, to cause a stir? Uh, are you going to cause trouble? It's kind of like when a pastor calls you, right? And you begin to wonder, is everything okay? Am I in trouble? Now, be honest. You've thought that before, right? We need to call more often, Ryan. Do you notice that, that God doesn't tell Samuel all that he wanted to know? He doesn't give him all the details here of every step of the way. He expects Samuel to be obedient. And this is the same for us, friends. He doesn't always tell us what the next thing is, but we are to be obedient. We're to do the next thing. We're to obey the word of God. We're to keep obeying. We do the next thing. And you may not know what comes next, but we should keep obeying, keep serving him. Obey, and as you obey, you'll be right where God wants you, right where God will use you. And you'll be ready to do what God has for you to do. So don't, don't you dare sit on your behind just waiting for God to, to unveil his entire plan. He won't. He won't do that. He wants your obedience to what he's already shown you. You do the next thing. You obey and God will unfold things for you. So Samuel comes and he comes peaceably and he's here to give a sacrifice to the Lord. He's he says to, to consecrate yourself, prepare yourself, and come to the sacrifice. So, so Jesse and his sons are set apart, and they're brought to the sacrifice. And now when you meet someone for the first time, and this is Samuel's first time meeting Jesse and his sons, it seems, well, what causes you to, to be impressed by someone? 
What, what, what about them that causes you to take notice of them? Is it the way they speak? Is it the way they present themselves? Is it the way they dress or their mannerisms? Is it their, their stature, their physical presence? What impresses you? It says here in the text, when they came to Jesse's sons, Samuel then looked at Eliab and thought, surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed before me. Eliab, a physically impressive man, probably, 6'2", 225. He's, he's a fine specimen, just like Saul. Surely this is the one that God has chosen. I mean, look at this guy. He probably has a, a, a low, rumbling voice that can get people's attention. He, 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 he looks impressive. He looks like a king. He, he, he talks like a king. He probably carries himself like a king. Look at this man. Do you see it? Do we look at people the same way? You know, a few weeks ago during the missions conference, we had the privilege to to have the speaker, Dave and Karen Brown, in our house. And our family loves this couple. They, they're affectionately called Uncle Dave and Aunt Karen. And our kids have, have loved getting to know them. We love having these connections with other believers. And well, during one afternoon, and you have to know Dave in this way, he just loves kids. He's a grandpa, and he loves this. And he just kind of takes our kids under, under in, in that way and acts like a grandpa. And so one day... David grabs a tissue We're in our house in the living room and he excitedly calls the girls over to him. And, and he says, I, I have something I want to show you, girls. It's, it's amazing. And he's, he's building it up, you know. And he, he grabs this tissue and he wads it into a, a ball and, and he said, you know, you need to watch this. And he's doing these, these movements with his hands and he's, he's sitting down and, and he says, watch this. And so the girls are there, all of them, staring intently. And he, he waves his hands around and he's, he's saying, look here. And then while he's doing it, he's tucking the tissue under his leg, under his knee. And he comes up and he says this, look. And they look, our girls were just amazed. Where'd the tissue go? And we'll go, come in again. And he comes back around and he, he does it again. And, and, and he's got his the attention, you know. His hands are waving. He's talking emphatically. He's looking at him and he grabs the tissue and he brings it up and he tucks it behind their ear and he says, ooh, look. And he has a tissue behind their ear. Now I'm sitting there thinking, oh, Dave, this is easy. Madeline, too, she sits there and Madeline's like, she, and Madeline quietly just kind of, she knows what's going on. But the girls, man, they are captivated. They're fooled. And I mean in a kind way. They're enamored. Their eyes are just, I mean, you just see it in them. They're, they're completely caught up in this situation. And in this moment, they're conditioned to look where they're taught and they see the wrong thing. They continue to miss it. He does this multiple times and the girls continue to miss it. Now don't tell them what the trick is because they still don't know. Why do I say this? Samuel has been conditioned too. He looks at the wrong thing. He's impressed with the wrong type of person. He's fooled. He's beginning to think like the world. He's, he's looking for what the world looks for. 
You know, the world doesn't care what your personal life looks like. The world can move past very quickly if you have a, a sinful past, a promiscuous past. What they really want to know is, can you perform? What can you do? What can you do for me? I don't care what you believe. I don't care who you are. Can you help me? So you can be a liar and a cheat and a sleazeball and a fake, but can you perform? Are you smart enough? Are you strong enough? Are you eloquent enough? Do you, do you have all the requirements? That's all the world needs. You see, they want the wealthy, right? The world wants the good looking, the, the clean cut, the strong. Do you have enough talent that is needed for the job? Do you have the, the right pedigree that show others that you deserve this position? You come from a good family. You know, we live in a political climate that could care less about the utter depravity of a candidate. As long as they will lower our taxes and fight for our causes, we'll excuse the sinful behavior. We'll just look past it. And we're bombarded in a culture that is utterly obsessed with the outside. You, you, you live in a world that cares so much about the look of someone than what they believe or how they think or who they are. And it's incredibly corrosive to our world. This has also affected the dating relationships in this world. So many men are not interested in dating or marriage because they're caught up in pornography. They've objectified women. It also affects how we look for a spouse in the world. Some of you are single here this morning and I'm just gonna say you're dumb. There, I said it. You're dumb because you're looking for a spouse the exact same way the world looks for a spouse. You're looking at the outside. You're looking for a mate the same way Samuel was looking for a king. The outside only. Are they good looking and can they perform? Now I'm a blessed man. I'm deeply attracted to my wife and I am extremely thankful that she looked past my looks and married me. But friends, if, if you are thinking that the biggest part of finding a spouse is the outward appearance, you are incredibly wrong. When you live with someone day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, you realize that it's exactly what the Lord says here in 1 Samuel 16, it's the heart. And I married someone so incredibly beautiful, but even more so, who she is, is beautiful. You know what drew me to my wife over 14 years ago was her serving at church. Sorry, I didn't tell her I was gonna talk about her this morning. Her, her willingness to serve, to give of herself, to love people, to teach people, the way she serves people, especially now her, her family so well. Her desire to, to know God's word and to give it to people, that's what you want in a spouse. It's, it's a changed heart. It's a heart following after God. And so single people that are here, stop being stupid. 
begin thinking like God thinks. And parents that are here, start cultivating this in your children while you still have them in your home. Start talking about this. Come open up this chapter again this week and start talking about this with your kids. You know, the, the world tries its best to dissuade this thinking. But you need to train your kids to look at the heart of people, to look at what God is doing and can do in people. Look for ways to see how God is working in other people's lives. And, and dating people, if you, if you know this is an issue now and you're in a dating relationship, even if you're engaged and you see the other, the significant other, the one you're with as a train wreck, don't stay on board. Get off the train. You know, pray that God would grow them and change them, most definitely, but you don't have to stay on the train. Until you say, I do, you can change trains, just so you know. Don't be fooled into thinking just the outside and the performance. You know, God very may well be doing something in their lives, but it doesn't mean that God wants you there during the process. Don't be fooled by the way the world thinks. Don't be like my kids who were easily distracted by the sleight of hand. And it's not just Samuel here that's fooled by the world. No, it's his family, David's family. Jesse thinks the same way. When we get to verse 11, after Samuel has asked about the, the first three sons and all seven come along and parade it out in front of them and not one of them is the one that God has chosen, Samuel asks, are all your sons here? Because he knows that God said that one of Jesse's sons is the one that God has chosen. But God said no to the first seven. So Jesse, are you holding back on me? What does he say? Yeah, yes. Yeah, there's one more. He, he's back home. He's keeping the sheep. And David is so insignificant to his own family that he's left home to tend the sheep. You know, couldn't they get a, a neighbor friend to take care of the sheep for this? So he could come along. This is his own family. This is how they view David. Let's leave him at home. He's not very significant. He can stay there for this special occasion. He's, he's small. He, he's the runt. I mean, I mean, he can just take care of the sheep. They can't hurt themselves. So, so David, you, you do it. This is how we view others. This, you find yourself thinking about others based upon their perceived worth or their outward appearance. You know, just consider for a moment this morning all the people that have had a, a positive and godly influence in your life. Do they all look the same? Do they all act the same? They all have the same background, gifts? You see, in, in, in the scriptures, the chosen one is usually not the one the world would choose. David wasn't tall. He wasn't perceived to be strong or mighty. He didn't look kingly. He wasn't rich. He wasn't brilliant. He, he was normal. He was ordinary. And so much so that his father leaves him at home to tend the sheep. And Jesse misses it. He's, he's fooled. Well, we see in the story that Samuel obeys when David comes and he anoints him. This is a private anointing. His, his public anointing won't come until the end of 1 Samuel. But David will soon be introduced to the king, current king. 
something significant. I don't know if you caught this. You should have. Something significant happens, though, after his anointing. It says the Spirit of God rushes upon him from that day forward. And this is a sign that God has chosen a new king. But there's something very important to talk about here because when we talk about the heart of David versus the heart of Saul, we can easily miss the point. If you don't put this passage in the context of the whole Bible, especially the whole narrative of David's life, it's possible, possible then to think that when God says, I don't want Saul as a king any longer, I will look upon the heart, and you begin to think that David has then an, a good heart, an intrinsically good heart, and then others have bad hearts. You begin to think that the other seven brothers, they just must have had a bad heart. But David, well, well David has a good heart. That God is looking for a good person, a person with a good heart. And you show me that guy, and I'll make him my king. Now, if that's true, then when you read the rest of David's life, you're going to be really confused. How does David do those really, really bad things if he has a really good heart? His record is really not much better than Saul. David does some terrible things. He does awful things. So is it David's heart, meaning it's, it's David all by his, his lonesome that God wants and not others? You know, there's no way that David has a, an intrinsically good heart. If you're unsure, read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and then read Psalm 51. We see that it isn't that David is basically good. No, it says that Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints him. And get this, and the spirit of the Lord rushes on him from that day forward. That is the key. Does it say that the spirit was in David so that ever so often when David just needed a little help, the spirit was there? Does it say David was a good guy with a great heart and the spirit was there just to get him over the hump? It's not what it says. David needed the spirit to flood into his life for every second of his life. For him to develop kingly character, to give him the heart to follow God. Kingly character is, is my life for you. It is, I'm happy if you're happy, but ungodly character or sinful character is your life to serve me. I don't care about you. All I care about is if I'm happy, if I'm served. That was Saul. He was all about himself. He, he wanted his needs met. He wanted to be preserved no matter what. He needed affirmation. He needed protection. He needed people to love him. We see that in chapter 15. Even if it meant that he would kill his own son because of a foolish vow that he made. And the Bible says this is how the human heart is naturally. Unless the spirit comes in and transforms. David is who he is because of God. And I, and I don't want you to miss that, friends. God is the one who works in him. God is the one who grows your character, conforming you to be like Jesus. Your talents are not who you really are. Character is. And character grows in the wilderness of life when trouble comes, when, when you have nothing else holding you up in this world. And God is after the heart that is submitted and controlled by the Spirit of God. And that's the only way that God can grow character in our lives. 
You know, if you were to spend some time this week and scan the Bible, you would see that virtually every time the Spirit is mentioned, the Spirit of God coming on the people, what happens next? Is it joyful celebration? Is it an easy life? Is it dancing? No. It's persecution. It's imprisonment. It's jail and wilderness. Right? Didn't Jesus experience this after he was baptized? Led out into the wilderness to be tempted. So when the Spirit comes, trouble begins. Now think about that. Why, why, why is that? Why does trouble begin? Because the Spirit is not after gifts and not after power. That's not the goal. Your talents are not who, who, who you really are. It's your character. The Spirit wants your heart. Do you see people and think, man, they have easy lives. It looks as though everything just falls into place for them. There's this superficiality about them. They, they, they really don't know about themselves. They, they don't know how to enter into other people's lives, the feelings of others. They lack wisdom and insight. Friends, it's because they lack character. Because character grows in the wilderness, in trouble, in the deserts of life. And it grows with the Spirit's help. See, friend, the reason you're unhappy is not your bad circumstances, it's your lack of character. And think about the person who has no fear of failure. He is most definitely going to be happier than a person who is constantly fearing failure. What about the, the one who doesn't get bothered by criticism? He's definitely going to be happier than the one who is devastated by criticism. And the person who has no need to prove themselves, they will be happier than the person who is driven and anxious and, and striving and constantly overworking. See, what makes you unhappy is not the lack of happy circumstances, but your lack of character. And why is character costly? Because it grows in times of trouble. It, it grows in our lives when things are hard. Character is costly because it's worth everything. And David will have character. His character will grow because he is really quickly thrusted into difficulty. And if you have read yet the rest of the book, feel free to read the rest of 1 Samuel, but this launches into a very difficult time for David. The next 16 chapters, we're gonna see chapter after chapter after chapter of David running for his life. Do you think that develops character? It does. Character is, is doing the right thing whether it makes you happy or not. And the only way to be happy in life is to have character. You know, let that sink in. Character is doing the right thing whether it makes you happy or not, and the only way to be happy in life is to have character. Character is the ability to do the right thing and forget about your own happiness. So what do we see when we look at people? Even when we look at ourselves, what do we see? It's probably not the same that God sees. And so we need to grow in this area. Humans and God are not normally on the same page. We are limited by what we can see, how we view people and circumstances, but God isn't limited. What does God see? I pray it's, it's growing character in us. But let's move on to my second point, what God sees. 
Remember, this passage is about sight. It's about vision. It's a passage um, being able to look and see and understand. And we've talked about what we see, but, but what does God see? So moving back in the chapter, back up to verse one, we notice that God views the circumstances much different than Samuel views things. And, and the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse. I have provided for myself a king. And God isn't heartless here. He's determined to do what is needed to fulfill his plan for his people. And at the end of verse one, it says, for I have provided for myself a king. And the literal Hebrew translation is, I have seen me a king. I have seen me a king. I have taken care of you, Samuel, and my people. I have seen it. And the true king never loses control of his kingdom. He is never phased by the latest emergency. He knows and he acts. Now, when Samuel gets up to act, remember, he's, he's stricken with fear. What if Saul catches me? He's going to kill me. Samuel sees Saul and is afraid. God sees another opportunity to work. He again has everything under control. God is not intimidated by Saul. And so Samuel obeys and brings Jesse along with his family for the sacrifice. But as we just looked already, when Jesse brings his sons, it's not the one that God has chosen. Samuel thinks God will choose the same type of king that Saul was. Samuel couldn't see the way that God sees. And in verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees much more than we can. He sees the heart. He sees deep within each of us. You know, Samuel thought it was the first son. He would be the one. And God rejects him. And listen, friends, we should reject what God rejects in this world. We should be on the same page as God. We shouldn't be fooled by this world. Don't be fooled like Samuel was fooled. Don't be distracted by the show. Don't be distracted by the performance or the display of lights and sound. Look to see what God sees. And what God says is most important. Look at character. It says, man looks at the outward. Literally, man looks with his eyes. Man doesn't see the way God sees. Man is distracted. Man is fooled. It's, he's duped into thinking that something is worth more than it really is. That's why you can fool a two-year-old with giving them a nickel instead of a dime because they think it's bigger. It must be better. But God knows so much more. He knows what's better. And we're so easily fooled. We, we don't see as, as God sees. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's, God's way of thinking of humans is much different than our thinking. And the world would have us to think of people the way that Samuel and Jesse think of people. We should think of appearance and stature and the outward only, but God is not fooled by the outside. You know, every place in scripture, God works in a way that reverses the world's values. Have you noticed that as you read the Bible? It's backwards. He goes with the younger son, 
Abel, not Cain. He goes with Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. He goes to the unwanted woman, right? We went through the book of Ruth. He goes to the unsightly. He goes to the old, the barren that we saw in this book. He chooses Sarah, not Hagar. He selects Leah, not Rachel. He uses Hannah, not Penna. And he continually chooses the surprising. He chooses the small, the insignificant. Why? Why does God consistently choose the lowly, the ordinary, the plain? Why does he do this? Because God wants to make it clear who the one is doing the work. It's not man. He doesn't work in them in spite of their weakness. He works because of their weakness. He chooses weak people and he works through them. Does that encourage you? I mean, look at the world, the the wars, the pain, the hurts, the broken relationships. Can those be salvaged by mere talent? Are those things, those things can be saved by eloquence and, and politics and training? Is it, is it we have to learn to say the right things? And you know, we have all the talent in the world, all the creativity, all the, the brilliance, but if we lack love, we are nothing. Remember the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 13. This is how God works in and through us. You could have all sorts of smarts. You could speak accurately. You could fill uh, understanding and give understanding to all of the world's problems and, and have a, a solution to all the world's problems. But if you don't have love, if you don't have grace, it means nothing. And the only way to show love is by growing your character, by submitting yourself to God and allowing him to change you. The world's issues won't be solved by your talents and your abilities. It can only be solved through Christ. We have more here. The story keeps moving. Jesse brings David out and God selects him to be king. Notice God chooses David. The doctrine of election is covering this entire chapter. Covers a lot of the Old Testament for that matter. The biblical doctrine of election gives us a firm foundation for assurance and humility. God's good and gracious purposes depend ultimately on him and not on us. Our hearts should leap out and say amen to that. And so therefore, they're certain. His decisions are certain. There's, There's no room for human pride. David is anointed and the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. But that's not all. Verse 14 Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. This doesn't mean that Saul lost his salvation. It means that Saul was no longer the one equipped by God to bring leadership to Israel. And years later, when David deserves a full weight of suffering for his own sin, do you remember David prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I suspect that David had this day in mind when he prays that. The spirit departs from Saul. It says here, now a harmful spirit comes. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took his instrument and played it. And Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departs from him. 
You could say the Lord is oppressing him. It's a different spirit than the Holy Spirit here. Maybe your translation leaves you wondering what's going on. I preach from the ESV, and the ESV says a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. It takes the, the moral element that maybe your version has. This spirit came upon Saul to bring misery. This is simply a judgment that God is bringing on Saul. He was being made miserable. We're not sure what this might have looked like for Saul. I'm guessing it was the constant reminder of his failure as king. His continual rejection of God as the true king and now God's rejection of him. And for now, I want you to notice there's nothing wrong with God judging sinners. If you want to read more about this, I would suggest you go to the book of Romans and read the first three chapters. God is completely just in his judging of sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. He is just to condemn us and to sentence us to an eternity separated from him. But we also read in the New Testament of God's great love for us by, by sending Jesus to take our place in punishment. He, he suffers and he dies for us so that we could escape the judgment of God. And if you're here, friends, and, and you're not a Christian, this offers for you. Christ came to redeem you, to pay for your sins on the cross, that you can trust in him for salvation. It's, it's an exchange. It's his life for yours. He, he gave his life so that you could have life. And if you desire to talk about this, friends, this is why we're here. When the service ends, I, myself, and other elders and pastors will be at the door. We want to we wanna talk with you about this. We'd love to talk to you about it. Well, Saul is tormented. And the only thing that brings comfort to him is when David comes and plays. He is loved by Saul, it says. And he becomes his armor bearer. He finds favor in the sight of Saul. I find this astounding that God brings the very man that has replaced Saul to come and to minister to him at this time. But I also find it very sad to realize that Saul doesn't use the occasion of this this trouble to sift his own heart to see if there's any wicked way in him. He, he doesn't seek any answers as to why he's, he's miserable. He doesn't ask why. No, it says that he just seeks relief. No repentance sought, just relief from the pain. Saul wants to feel better. And if that is not the sign of the times today, Your coworkers, your neighbors, maybe even your family are not asking the hard questions about life. They just want relief. They want to feel better. They're steeped in their sin and they don't ask why. They just want relief. And they find it any way they can. And this is Saul. Well, what can we learn from this chapter? In the book of Zechariah, it sums up all the great and powerful people and how God views them. It says, not by strength or by might, but, my, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Only when we stop trying to be like Saul can God then truly be extraordinary through us. 
See, too many people have tried to become David by pursuing the path of Saul. And it's exhausting, it's pointless. God will not share his glory. So God will continue to take the ordinary, the plain, the outcast, the the dismissed, and, and he will pour in his power into their lives. Only one person in our lives will be seen as great. It's either God or us. God will not share his glory. Now this is a heavy pill for many of you possibly to swallow because you've been fed a steady diet of praise. Many in your lives, your parents, teachers, peers, who tried to convince us that we are, we are distinguished, that we're extraordinary, that we're awesome. Too many people in this world land on the side of talent, making sure we think only of what we can bring to the table to, to show our worth. And, and then the danger of only looking at our talents, our abilities, that we begin to look at our, our worth the same way that Saul does and Samuel and Jesse. Now listen, friends, this is, this is why you needed to make it a priority to come and gather with the church every week, with the family of God, because you spend the next six days being told by yourself and told by others to boast in your good looks, to boast in your achievements, to boast in your relationships, to boast in your kids, to boast in your security, to boast in your home and your grades and your finances and your friendships. And today, the Lord's Day, we come in and we say, we boast in God and God alone. That's why we need the church. Because we're inundated day in and day out to boast in anything but God. David continues. He continues to learn what it means to be small and to allow God to be big. He continues to serve God faithfully out in the pasture when God called him to be king. He was doing what was asked of him. He most definitely has times of unbelief, but God would reign supreme in his life. Even when he wrote the 23rd Psalm, you can see how he views himself in light of the God he serves. He he is the sheep and God is the shepherd. He embraced his role. He, He understood who he was in light of who God is. He was an experienced shepherd, seeking not his own glory, but being faithful with the task that God gives him. And God would use David's experience with the sheep to glorify God in his pursuit to be a faithful king. And friends, this is what God still does today. Mothers who are here who feel undervalued, changing diapers for unappreciative babies, driving kids all over the county for activities, making dinner for a family. You can know that God sees all this and you should know that he's still in the business of using your seemingly mundane tasks for the glory of God. Be faithful in that pasture that God has you business people and day workers who often work dead-end jobs unnoticed by their supervisors, you're not unnoticed by God who is using your plain, even boring days to grow you and to grow your character as you serve him. And students that are here, many of whom I'm sure are eager to finish school 
and to begin their lives and to make a difference in the world. And remember in those times of training that God is molding you. God is shaping you to the character of his son. He's forging your character with patience and endurance for a lifetime of service on his behalf. And retired people who maybe often feel that they have gone into a different forgotten pasture. And you believe now that you're not needed. You are, friends. God is using you to, to bolster up your families and this family. Your, your wisdom and life experience brings health and stability to the church family. I, I'm a better pastor because of the retired folks that are part of this church. And we are a better church because of you. So none of us should despise the, the pasture that God has placed us in for now because it's the pasture that he's using to grow us. Through suffering, through difficulties, but these are God's laboratories to, to mold our hearts, to, to make us look like his son. And we need the constant reminders that David's story is not about us, especially as we head into the next chapter. You know what 1 Samuel 17 is, right? David and Goliath. We've heard, I've heard too many sermons that don't faithfully preach what the text says. Look at David. Have you seen the courage of David? He wasn't much, just a small little guy. He can do it. You can do it. No motivational talk. Go do it. Have the courage like him. It's not what the chapter's about. The story's not really about David. It's, it's not about us primarily. And we can definitely take things away from these stories and apply it to our lives, but it's, it's not about us. And these stories, this story in 16 and 17, are there to remind us of someone greater than David. And these stories should point us to Christ. He is truly the only extraordinary one. And this story is, is not meant to focus on David. It should point us to Christ. God selects David, not to hold him up so that we would praise him. No, God chooses David, elects David so that we would see how God continually chooses the ordinary. He chooses the plain. He chooses the small for his glory. And he chooses to work in them. He chooses the things in this world that no one else would choose. And that God fills them with himself so that he will get the glory. Do you see the, the seeds of the gospel here in 1 Samuel 16? This chapter is about the rise of a king. Not David, God. He again rises to the top. He is the one to be worshiped, not David. And God is establishing his line through the family of David. Many years later after these events, the prophet Isaiah would look forward to the day that another would come from the line of David. Isaiah 11, one through four. Actually, turn there. I want you to see it in your Bibles. Isaiah 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, 
and his delight shall be, the, be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, what I see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And jump down to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. There's two things I want you to notice. Did you catch in verse one, it says that the one will come from a shoot. That means it comes from something else. But then later in verse 10, it says that the same one is the root. Did you get that? The root is something that you've grown out of. And, and what he's saying is that, the Je- that Jesse and David brought forth this one, and this one brought forth David and Jesse. How, how could someone be both a descendant of David and Jesse and at the same time the source of David and Jesse? And there's only one answer, and it sounds crazy to the world. And, and the answer is that the creator God, who is the root of all of us, who's the source of all of us, was born into the world as a weak human being, and he came as a descendant of David. He is the God-man. Jesus Christ the God-man. It's astounding. Friends, this passage and so many others in Scripture point us to the one, to Jesus. He is our salvation and hope. And I pray that you will trust in him today. You will leave this morning with the assurance that you don't have to rely on your talents or your looks or your abilities You can leave knowing that you can serve God, that it wasn't anything that he saw in you. He saw you who you were, and he saved you. Or maybe he's saving you. Maybe he's calling you this morning. That Christ came to redeem you from your sin. Pray that you would trust in him today. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to stand before your people and to proclaim your word. And I recognize again, God, it's not my words, it's yours that bring change in the lives of your people. I thank you for your word. You you gave it to us that we can freely read it and love it in this country. Help us not to forget. Help us not to set it aside in the midst of busyness. Father, help us to to carve out dedicated time every day to spend time in your word, to, to get to know you more. And I pray that we would allow your word to, to change us. God, I'm reminded again this week, I'm so thankful that you choose the ordinary. You choose the plain, the simple, and, and you fill us. You transform us for your honor and for your glory alone. I thank you for saving us. Use us as we leave this place to, to be ambassadors for you, to preach your gospel to those that we come in contact with. Help us to be faithful this week.
And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.